hello everyone. Today I am here with Scott, the founder of Sir Kensington. Scott, why don't you introduce yourself to our great audience today? Well, thanks for having me, Thomas. Um, my name is is Scott Norton, and I I co-founded Sir Kensington's, and we're best known for making condiments with character. Uh, we started the business in in 2010, and um, and we're here today to talk about a bit about my journey, but I hope um, a lot about about the the you know the entrepreneurial process in general, about the changing world of food, the fascinating world of marketing and media, um, and it's great to have. I would say I would call this an intergenerational chat um, since you were at the absolute bleeding edge of helping businesses and helping brands and, and platforms grow in a very new era. So it's it's great to be here, and thanks for having me, Thomas. My pleasure. Scott, why don't you tell us your humble beginning stories? Well, I I have to say, I you know, I don't frankly have, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the most humble of beginnings. You know, in so many ways, I was born on third base, so to speak. You know, I grew up in, in Northern California and um, my uh, my parents were both filmmakers doing kind of corporate communications. My, my mother was really the entrepreneur of the household. Um, as a producer, my dad was a director, you know, more so the creative. And so from an early age, I, I really grew up around storytelling as, as a practice and as a craft, both, you know, as part of our sort of lore as a family, but also professionally, which is what my parents did. And so because of that, you know, we had things like, you know, one of my parents' clients was Adobe. And of course they worked, you know, with Adobe products. And so you know, in the in the late '90s, we had like copies of Premiere and Photoshop lying around, and and I would install them, and I taught myself Photoshop, um, probably when I was like you know 11 or 12, and then I ultimately taught myself like at the time it was called Go Live, which was a HTML web design app. Um, taught myself Illustrator and learned Illustrator, and so I you know from from those humble beginnings, I love to kind of create visual worlds on the computer, and um, and so that led me to creating t-shirt companies and new ideas for products and for brands. And ultimately, you know, the first, the first, very first uh, iteration of, of Sir Kensington's, I designed the, the you know, the, the label and, um, uh, and the website and, and built the website and kind of from those, those humble beginnings. And that was back in our senior year of college. So that was our, that was our beginning. And if you want more color in any, any part of that, I'm happy to provide it, but yeah, not, the most, not the most humble of beginnings, <laughs> but uh, beginnings nonetheless. Yeah. Feel free to dive deep. I want to hear why you got into the industry that you did. Yeah. So I never in a million years thought that I would be in the food business period. Right. I mean, everyone, you know, I'm a quote unquote millennial. And so people start tech businesses, right? They start social networking companies. They start media businesses or, you know, maybe FinTech, but food, like who, who, that was not a, an industry that had any change or disruption or anything like that. Um, but it's, you know, it started really in this recognition that back in 2008, that there was something happening in food where people were demanding more from what they were eating. All of a sudden, you saw grocery stores offering grass-fed beef and cage-free eggs. Dairy was going organic. And at the same time, too, not just from an ingredients perspective, but also from an identity perspective, people were 
creating their own identities and their own tribes around the foods that they were eating, right? Whether that was paleo or, or later keto or even um, food, of course, you know, is a, is a moral decision in a lot of ways. And also the fact that, that food in America, you know, coming out of World War II, was so industrialized and so corporatized and so materialized that there was sort of a hippie-driven um, counterculture movement towards natural foods that I think collided very interestingly with um, sort of the, the millennial rejection of, of consumerist culture that brought our generation into this very analog um, very natural first world of food. And so, you know, we, we said, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here because as all these foods are changing and people are looking for, you know, more purely sourced, ethically sourced foods, as well as food with a story, right? Food that they can identify with, um, as there were many different types of mustards, but only one type of ketchup, uh, could we create a ketchup that was actually better and in line with the way that that we wanted to eat from an ingredients perspective? And also, really importantly, could, could thrive in this world where people were looking for food not just as nourishment, but also for entertainment. And that kind of combination of nourishment and entertainment of what we would at Sir Kensington's, Sir Kensington's call integrity and charm that is the character of Sir Kensington himself that we that we dreamt up, and we said, okay, you know, we don't we don't have any reputation as individuals, certainly not as chefs. We barely knew how to cook, um, so how could we stand out on shelf if we were to create a product? I read this book, great book by Seth um, Seth Godin, who you know has is a is a sort of a a mentor in some ways to me and definitely an inspiration. And he wrote this great book called The Purple Cow about how to create products that, that really stand out and that sort of do the marketing for themselves. And so we said, okay, to create a better ketchup that was going to stand out, we have to be dramatically different by doing everything the exact opposite of the market leader, which is Heinz. So if Heinz was squirting, we would be scooping like a high-end European preserve. And if Heinz was uh, in plastic, we would choose glass, right? Looking handsome and sort of fancy on the table. And if Heinz was synonymous with the roadside diner and the Americana of fast food, um, what what's the exact opposite of that? That is English. That is something that's a bit you know elevated and somewhat hoity-toity, but also at the same time tongue-in-cheek. And so how do, we, how do you humanize that and how do you personify that? We did that through this character that we invented called Sir Kensington, this, this you know, elaborate backstory that we created. He went to Cambridge and he went to Oxford. He worked um, you know, as an academic in industry for the Queen based in Constantinople, studying Ionian chutneys and other spice sauces that he would then bring back and was ultimately knighted for for uh, for for flavor. Um, he created a you know a, a, a successful business inventing reinsurance, and that at a salon one day, when the Emperor of Japan and met the, the Catherine the Great of Russia, and she wanted some ketchup on her Kobe beef. Um, in that moment, 
uh, Sir Kensington created the sauce itself. And so, you know, that elaborate backstory became uh, just one of the many sort of playful totems that we had and, and that we created visibility and, and marketed the product around. So we always had a lot of play with it. We always had a lot of fun with it, especially because at the beginning, we never thought it would become a business um, and actually launch into uh you know, any sort of business of note. So it was really almost more like an art project in those early days. Got it. And then how did you create the product? Well, we started, um, you know, by, by making it ourselves in what, uh, you know, in our home kitchen, in my, in my off-campus apartment, actually. And rather than say that we understood the best way to make the world's best ketchup, we took approach, um, that is known in quote unquote, like design thinking uh, and in design communities as rapid prototyping, which is where you sense, okay, what are the many different possible solutions to this problem and then test them quickly. So we made six different ketchups. We made one that was like, had clove in it, more like a Christmas ketchup with, we did one with Greek yogurt in it that was like what we call the blonde ketchup. Um, we did a spicy ketchup. We did a couple of classic ketchups and then we, we, put uh, invitations into our friends' mailboxes in, in school that said, Sir Kensington invites you to a ketchup tasting. And in that moment, um, you know, we threw this party where 30 people came over. They tasted the six different ketchups. They all got scorecards. And uh, that, you know, yielded for us a, a really good sense of which were the ketchups that people liked and which was the ones that they, they didn't. Uh, and so to this day, every new product that we've ever come out with, we, uh, we throw these tasting parties and they've gone from our friends to being friends and, and industry and chefs and buyers and occasionally media. Um, but we've always had that collaborative element as we develop products. What did scaling look like to you in the early days? Well, you know, when you launch a business, you're an entrepreneur and that's day one. And then basically from day two to day infinity, you realize that entrepreneur is just a fancy word for salesperson. You know, what scaling looks like in the early days is being told no over and over and over again. You're going to be told no from retailers. You're going to be no, told no from chefs and, and restaurants. You're going to be told no from distributors. You're going to be told no from vendors. So in the early days, I mean, scaling is quote unquote scaling, right, is you know, in this business, it's not necessarily just about, you know, sitting behind a computer and doing a little bit of, you know, Excel math and figuring out, okay, if we dump money into Facebook ads, you know, are we going to see growth? Our business, especially in the early 2000s at those beginning years, you know, it's an analog people-driven business where um, you're, you're really trying to get to yes with people and win hearts and minds. And so, you know, in those early days, it's about, okay, how do you First of all, develop that thick skin and develop that incredible resilience and tenacity because you're going to be told no all the time. But, you know, if you take no for an answer, your business ceases to exist. And then how do you also separate the signal from the noise in those no's, get feedback from people and adapt the product and adapt your positioning, adapt your, your messaging, um, adapt your strategy to better win. And so, you know, we've, we've reformulated the catch-up probably three times by now. We've reformulated the mayo twice. Um, we've changed the packaging three or four times pretty significantly. And so it's, it's, it's going, if we talk about the rapid prototyping at the beginning, 
It's about that agile iterative process where if something isn't working, you you put it through the crucible and you put it through the gauntlet and you you know you you fix it up and you improve it and you evolve it so that um, it's going to be better the next month or the next quarter. So that's what that's what scaling looked like at the beginning. And what did you do to get you know your first set of hundreds of customers when no one knew about this product that you just created? Uh, well, it's again, it's an incredibly sort of offline. I would say two two big pieces to that, right? Is from a sales perspective, actually, you know, they haven't happened through COVID, but in the food world, trade shows are incredibly important, and trade shows are these bizarre kind of social commercial moments where you have uh, brands and companies set up booths, and then tens of thousands of of retailers, retailers, you know, sometimes restaurants, industry gawkers, all kind of descend to try your products. And it's like a speed dating session with all these different retailers. And then from that, you know, the dust settles and you follow up and then you get into those stores. So that's how you, that's how we really attracted our first set of customers. And that's how we met, you know, our first customers of Dean and DeLuca, of William Sonoma, of Whole Foods, you know, in those very early days, we met them all at trade shows. And then from a from an individual customer perspective, I really I can't you know again it's a different era, but still, you know, PR and public relations, being able to tell a story and break through the noise and and position yourself of doing something different and developing what I would call an onlyness, right, which is sort of a monopoly on your on your proposition. That was something we did in the early days to carve out a bit of our name for ourselves. And so, you know, by there was a great David and Goliath narrative um, around, you know, challenging Heinz. Um, and there was, uh, you know, a, a kind of a great story about like, well, you know, for instance, Malcolm Gladwell had wrote this, um, had wrote this story for the New Yorker about how um, there can really be only one ketchup, which is Heinz, uh, because of of the specific sort of flavor uh, that it had, and what he called the amplitude, and um, and so that that was a narrative that was really powerful for us in um, uh, in kind of getting that PR and getting that message out there. When you started your company, were you working corporate at the time? Um, I was, yeah, I well. We, when we started with the idea, we were still in college, um, and then I, I had accepted this full-time job actually at an investment bank, and I went and I did that for about a year and a half and, and quickly determined that the culture was not for me, um, and then I traveled around Asia on a folding bicycle for 10 months, um, which was a transformative and fantastic experience that... Um, that actually shaped kind of who I am today and definitely informed the, the, the business of Sir Kensington's. And at the beginning, was it just you and your co-founder bootstrap a hundred percent? Um, actually you, when you, when you say bootstrap, you're talking about like team or you're talking more about like, like, like no fundraising on the finance side. Like did you fund everything? We, um, well, just by, by nature of the fact that we had to buy our first run of product, um, we actually did fundraise from the very beginning. Um, so we first went to basically, as they say, friends, family, and fools. Um, first, we got a loan um, from someone for our first jars. 
And then once we had those jars in hand and we started going door to door and attracting customers, that's when we went and got, you know, friends and family to, um, to invest and write sort of our first, our first round of, of angel checks. Um, and still incredibly grateful for those people. And, uh, and yeah, that, that was the beginning. I mean, we just, we didn't have, you know, these, these businesses are, they're not, capital intensive in a technical sense, but they do require working capital, right? They do require investment and visibility. Um, you know, we had at the beginning, of course, everyone depresses their, their salaries, but their salaries nonetheless, right. That you've got to, that you've got to pay. Um, and especially at those very, you know, in the, in the early stages of a, a physical products business, you're not working with, with, the, the high margins that you hopefully will eventually get to. So in the early days, um, you know, it typically it comes with, uh, with external funding. What are some of the costs that comes with starting a business such as uh, the one you created? Well, um, you know, first and foremost, you have your product costs, right? Because mm-hmm. if you don't spend on product, then you have nothing to sell. And that's, yep. that's frankly most of it. Um, but of course, that's what we'll call working capital, right? Because that's inventory you invest in and then you turn. And then another, another major cost, which is somewhat hidden to the customer or the consumer, but a major cost is that um, to get into retail stores, you've got to pay um, for different sort of promotional features. You've got to mark down your price. Um, you've got to You've got to invest with them in a way that uh, that that that's very expensive, especially for a small brand. So, for those of you out there, you know, listening in the audience, you know, whenever you see anything on sale at a grocery store, it's not the grocery store paying for that sale; it's the the manufacturer, right, the brand paying for that sale. And that and you actually can't get into a retailer and just opt not to go on sale. The way that the system works is you're more or less forced to go on sale unless or else they won't take your product. Um, so that's that's a big and you know a major cost that's sometimes unexpected. And then um, okay, salaries and payroll, right? So you've got to have your operations and sales team and you've got to have your own kind of your own salary. And then there's also, and you can dial up or down how much marketing you do. Right, performance marketing, brand marketing, um, partnerships marketing—all of those are the, are the different major areas of investment. And then, of course, you'll have what we call like professional services. So you got to hire a lawyer, right? you got to have a tax accountant, um, all those kinds of things, which are not huge when you have a business of scale. But when you're first starting out, um, lawyers and accountants are expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So with that being said, I I, I think this will help the audience. Um, what advice do you have for somebody? if they want to make a product today, but they're bootstrapped, but they're still working corporate? I guess in that case, like what what would you do? So it's a great question. Um, I think there are a couple different angles here, right? So one is I think that, you know, crowdfunding is an interesting new feature of the last, call it six years. And some products are gonna lend themselves better to crowdfunding um, either for a form of get, taking pre-orders, right? Um, it could also be crowdfunding in the form of, let's say that you are, you know, a creator and maybe you've already got an audience. Could you find a way to monetize that already, you know, through Patreon or through any other creator platform? Um, there's also, there's a whole new world of 
early stage angels in consumer businesses, some of which are, I think, in the audience right now that I see. Um, there is a, there's also a whole new world of uh, institutional funds. You know, th most of these funds don't invest at sort of the earliest stages. So most of them are going to, you know, invest right before you launch or, or after you launch. Um, but then the other, I'd say, interesting thing is like, there are there are also, especially if you're doing something in maybe an economic opportunity zone, or you're doing something that is specifically environmentally preferred, or something that's academically interesting. There are also grant programs out there. Um, so you know, I think it's it behooves people before they go to a traditional financing source. There are a lot of cities that have grant programs to start small businesses and, and entrepreneurship. I mean, if there are any Canadians in the audience, the Canadian government at a federal level and at a at a at a state level and maybe at a city level, they give out a lot of money because they want to prime the pump for entrepreneurship in Canada. And I think that probably a lot of a lot you'll see this in a lot of places around the world. Um, less so in America, but there are some cities that do this, and especially true if you're doing something again in the sustainability space where there might be grants attached to it um, likewise too if something is academically interesting maybe it you know is growing out of of academia there are grants that are attached to that public private partnerships that you can that you can tap into um, but i would say the number one best way to do it is you know save up a bit of money yourself how much would you recommend Oh, it completely it completely depends, right? On what are your upfront R and D costs? You know, um, mm -hmm. what are you know what's the scale ambition? But I guess what I was going to say is, pick you know choose a business with two features: one, really healthy, good gross margins, right? So if you have north of fifty percent, north of sixty percent when you're just beginning, and two, a negative working capital cycle, which means that instead of a business where you sell to a distributor who sells to a retailer. And you basically, you have to buy the product and then 30 days later you ship it out and then 90 days after that, right? So a total of 120 days from your cash outlay to when the money's coming back to you, instead of using out external sources to float that, instead, if you can have a business where you're getting paid up front, right? Like through a credit card and the internet, and then you can go produce the product and ship it out later. Right. So things like that, or maybe that is essentially your own pre-order system, right? It's a batch method or it's a drop method. Um, if you can create those negative working capital cycles, then the amount of money that you'll need to raise externally is much, much, much lower. If your product is very profitable on a gross margin basis, again, much, much lower burn. Um, and that would allow you to, you know, save up. I don't know. I mean, totally depends, right? But if you're talking about paying yourself, then, then that's a factor that goes in there. If you're going to keep your corporate job on the side, then you're going to be in a place where you can maybe put twenty-five, fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars towards um, towards the launch of a business and still be able to um, to to float it and get to the point where you can then eventually go full time. What are some of your behind the curtain moments? Basically, things you had to give up in order to pursue this vision of yours, which you know was a big success because you got it acquired. Well, I mean, I've been fortunate. Um, I mean, I, I, I want to talk about behind the curtain moments. It's very interesting that you phrase it as like things that you have to give up because this actually was my dream, right? So I almost did the opposite, right? I, 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 didn't, I didn't give up my dream. I didn't give up the urge to 
hang my own shingle and create a company with my own culture and create a products that represent my values. I mean, that is, that's the dream. Um, on the flip side though, not every challenge that you face and every moment of pain feels like the healthy growth that it is. It feels like an inconvenience. It feels like a challenge, right? It feels discouraging. And, and I think that that's something that everyone, you know, it's so hard that like in those moments, of pain and then those moments of rejection that is ultimately like what steals you and there's a great there's a great quote um which is what feels like friction is actually polish and so those behind the curtain moments you know i uh certainly i've gotten rejected from a product basis before but you know there was a period of time where every person who decided you know to leave the company right former employees who said you know I'm going to a different company I'm going to a competitor I'm going to another business it felt like a personal rejection right that they were abandoning us right that they were leaving us eventually as you grow as a leader you realize that that's not it's not a personal abandonment right and that people have to go graduate and they have to spread their wings and fly I've also been in moments where, you know, I, when I started the business, I led marketing and I, I identify as a marketer and a brand builder and as a communicator. And in 2015, my team came to me, my co-founder came to me and they said, you know, you're not the right marketer for this business anymore, right? You're not the right marketing lead. And that led me to one, reinvent my, frankly, career and my role within the company. But it was also a gigantic blow to my identity um, because that's how I saw myself, right? That's how I assembled my own identity. That forced me into a reinvention, which you know led to basically the person I am today, which is you know I'm still a, 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 I have a beginner's mindset and I'm very much an unformed human, you know, not not an expert by any means. But it's those behind the moment curtains of of uh, behind the curtain moments of of pain and of being really deeply challenged, of feeling rejected, of feeling like you failed. Uh, that actually shape you and and turn you into ultimately the person that you're meant to become. Love it. In a few moments, we're going to open this up to the Q&A. So if you have a question for Scott, just raise your hand and we'll call on you so that uh, he can answer your question. Now, back to your story, I want to hear about, you know, what it was like to be acquired. What did it look like from the beginning of that process? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I feel like it's one of those, I mean, it's, it's, you know, in our, in our society, entrepreneurship has been, it's been lionized in, I think a very Hollywood way. Right. And we are obsessed as a culture with this kind of like this moment of economic freedom. We are obsessed as a culture with things like shark tank that, it doesn't really represent the actual fundraising and entrepreneurial process. And the headlines that we read every day aren't always, you know, on, oh, this company was acquired or this company went public. You know, they don't tell the full story either. Um, so first of all, from the very beginning, the fact that we had investors, right? The fact that we raised money from the outside, at that point, you're kind of making a, a, a bargain of sorts that eventually you they're going to see a return and they're either going to do that with a company that goes public or a company that is acquired. And a company of our scale was not really a right fit for um, going public, though, of course, in 2021 and, you know, with the, the SPAC world, you know, maybe that would have changed. Um, but at the time, 
we, uh, we, we, we were connected to Unilever and were approached by them um, after we sort of got to know them a bit more, I would say, socially or, you know, as members of the same ecosystem. And they, uh, you know, they, they made it clear to us that they were making big changes to the, the, the food offering that they had in their food business. And that they were selling certain businesses, you know, margarine businesses, for instance, that represented more the old guard of food, um, and that was less where food was going. And they wanted to, they wanted to lean in, and they wanted to acquire businesses that spoke to the future of food, that spoke to a younger customer, that spoke to a values-driven customer, because uh, they actually are truly a values and purpose-driven company, dating way back to their founding. Um, their first product was soap that was marketed in, in a way that boosted hygiene at a time where not all doctors you know, and nurses in Europe washed their hands. Uh, and they, at the time where most factory workers worked in sweatshops, they actually created in the late 1800s these villages, these towns connected to their factories where there was education and there was healthcare and there was clean housing. And so we'll call this stakeholder capitalism was always part of their DNA. And when we thought about, well, ultimately, if we knew we had to sell this business at some point, and we wanted to sell this business at some point, who would be the 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 right steward for this? How could we how could we sell the business and ultimately move on and trust that the legacy and the and the products that we that we signed our name to, um, and the and the teams connected to that were treated right? And it was because of that values and purpose alignment that we determined that you know this was going to be the right long term home for the business. And um, obviously, you know, it it uh, after the fact, it comes with tremendous amount of challenges, right? I mean, they are a leading progressive multinational, but they are a multinational nonetheless, right? They're a giant matrixed organization. Um, one might drop the B word, bureaucracy, right, of a big company like that. And at the same time, you know, you might drop with Sir Kensington's the P word. I mean, we're a bunch of precocious, you know, young, fast-moving entrepreneurs that have a different attitude toward risk and a different attitude towards spending money, right? A different attitude towards uh, competition, right? If you're used to, if you're used to having one product to sell and focusing totally on that, versus being right next to a Hellman's, right, in Best Foods, which they own, um, it's a very different way of thinking, uh, as, as well as other mustards that they have and things like that. But, um, you know, we, that happened in 2017, and it was a relatively fast process, um, I think by many standards as far as acquisitions go, but ultimately one that uh, has, has taught us a tremendous amount and cemented our products and, and our legacy in a way that will live on hopefully forever. And um, yeah, uh, it was a yeah, it was a it was a fantastic learning experience, growth experience, and obviously a tremendous win, um, given that it it represents you know as a life changing event, and um, and I'm 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 just thrilled to be you know still connected to the team there. Awesome. So since they acquire you, I assume they send you a bunch of free products all the time, right? Well, it's actually it's kind of funny because you know we uh, I so I. You know, I was I stayed at the business for a bit over three years since the acquisition, mm-hmm. and then I ultimately I decided you know, after finding the right fantastic successor to run the business at the end of last year I took a bow and moved on. And so for the last six weeks I have been buying the products at retail, 
so it's not like they uh, it's not like they send me free product anymore. But I'm I'm more than happy to go in and and you know yuck it up with the the, the people at Whole Foods and and talk about my little ketchup company. That's awesome. What was it like the moment that you know that moment happened because you're basically stepping away from the dream that you always envisioned for many years. You know, in, in so many ways, I it's just maybe sort of an odd response or a non-standard response, but um, I had three years to think about what was next. You know, I, I sort of set a timeline for myself at the time of the acquisition. And so it wasn't like I was, you know, hit with a wall of bricks at that moment. And all of a sudden I like woke up and I was like, I have to leave. Instead, it was like I had all this time to think about the transition process. So it was much more smooth um, than you might expect. And it was sad, for sure. It was sad to, um, you know, to recognize in that moment that I would no longer be, you know, in day-to-day capacity, a leader and a servant of this company and, the, and this brand. Um, but at the same time, it was also, I think, one of the proudest moments because it's, you know, in a moment when you leave and you've done all the groundwork um, to make sure that that there's someone there and there's a team there that can really lead it in line with your long-term vision and, and uh, you know, adapt that vision, uh, that's a, that's a real moment of pride uh, because it means that the business is now big enough to run and, and thrive without you. That's awesome. What are you working on today that, that excites you? So um, I've been so fortunate, you know, in, in the later years to develop great relationships with other entrepreneurs. Uh, and, and what I'm really excited about now is finding people that are building disruptive consumer brands, you know, especially in food, but really all across the board um, in this new era, right? In a new digital first era, in a new omni-channel, right? DTC, Amazon, uh, retail era, and also in an era where more people, including everyday customers and citizens, care about environmental issues, where they care about issues of social inclusion, right? I mean, the I'm, I'm super excited to become part of businesses that see themselves as making a bigger societal contribution, recognizing that it's a paradox and recognizing that it's imperfect, um, but, but also building we'll call brands that have that ethos of education and entertainment to them and that have that ethos of, of world building. So I'm very excited to meet entrepreneurs that are, uh, that are building for the next era and, um, uh, on a on a very small kind of personal basis, invest in them um, for certain ones. Maybe get more involved as an advisor, and also you know considering putting more wood behind the arrow to uh, raise a fund to do that at a, at a at a much bigger scale. So that that's what's exciting to me right now. Um, broadly, instead of you know just having an impact on one company, um, you know having an impact on on ten companies, and um, and also not having, you know, officially any direct reports on the process too, uh, is also kind of a liberating experience for the, for the first time in many, many years. Great. My last question to you is what are hustle things that people can do if they want to start today during COVID, uh, you know, while working from home and having this ability to just kind of be remote. What are, what are what things? Hustle tactics. Like basically if people want to start a business, um, what can people do to stand out? Oh yeah. Well, I, I've never self-identified as a hustler, nor do I, um, 
do I have hustle tactics just like up my sleeve? But I would say, you know, I think it starts with leaving space to create, right? Leaving uh, time and space to to create. Um, and that is like finding a medium that speaks to you, whether that is in something like food or, you know, my, my wife and I used to make soap together. My wife used to make her own natural shampoo. Um, could be something digital, right? Like teach yourself to code, teach yourself to design. Or if you already know how to code and design, uh, Build things that 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 can stand out. The definition, or the one definition difference between work and play, is that in work, the output matters, but in play, the process matters, and the output doesn't matter. And I think you know, Sir Kensington was born out of a moment of play, and so I would say you know, find find moments to create that feel more like play, where it's process driven and not necessarily output driven, and that will help you follow your curiosity to, to something that could ultimately be a livelihood. Awesome. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm going to let some people on stage and they'll ask you some questions. 